0: I'm Mike Gillis, and
1: I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio Versus the Martians.
0: This month, Steven Spielberg.
1: 20th century was the century of cinema. Motion pictures are, for better or worse, now humanity's primary storytelling medium. And when we talk about great directors, we're usually talking about a rogues gallery of 20th century artists. Fritz Lang, Orson Welles, Charlie Chaplin, Hitchcock, Bergman, Kurosawa, Kubrick. And then we arrive at Steven Spielberg. Spielberg? Uh, Sure, he's a great director, but is he one of the greats? Well, there's nothing controversial about Spielberg's importance to big-ticket Hollywood filmmaking. Spielberg is, arguably, one of the most recognized and respected living directors. He's won the Oscar for Best Director twice, and nine of his films have been nominated for Best Picture. Two of his films are in the top ten highest-grossing films of all time, and he's launched two incredibly huge blockbuster film franchises, the Indiana Jones series and Jurassic Park. And he has the distinction of being a founder of a major film studio, DreamWorks. Spielberg isn't just a director or a mogul, he's a brand name. But let's roll it back. Spielberg started off as a film prodigy at a very young age. He started directing films at age 8, his first feature film at 16. And by the age of 22, he'd signed a four-movie deal with Universal Studios to produce long-form TV movies. It wasn't until 1975's Jaws that Spielberg became a household name. A creature feature about a ravenous mega-shark terrorizing a Long Island beach locale captivated audiences. The film became the highest-grossing movie of all time, only to be overtaken by Star Wars. Even today, it's a terrifying, hilarious, and well-paced thriller that leaves you satisfied. Throughout the late 70s and 80s, his films upheld the reputation for churning out box office smashes, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. His films deftly balanced the popcorn film styling, with very well-crafted, mature storytelling. And then with 1985's The Color Purple, Spielberg began to attempt serious drama. The film was not only a box office hit, but was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, tying for the most Oscar-nominated film of all time. And in the 90s, Spielberg hit his stride. Recovering from the lackluster Peter Pan-inspired hook, he exploded with 1993's Jurassic Park. And outdoing himself, he released the critically renowned Holocaust film Schindler's List in the very same year. Now moving through the next two decades, Spielberg's films would vacillate between special effects-laden epics and sci-fi romps and myriad dramas, almost all with his characteristic acumen for good storytelling. As for my own relationship with Spielberg, he was ubiquitous in my childhood. E.T. was the first movie my family ever rented, and the first we ever bought on VHS. And I'm pretty sure we bought the Indiana Jones trilogy from McDonald's on that promotion for $10 a piece. I watched the shit out of those movies, and they made an indelible mark on my young imagination, and were among the reasons that I actually chose to go to film school. Spielberg is, and I think will remain, synonymous with Hollywood filmmaking for as long as cinema exists. Future artists will continue to draw inspiration from his filmography, and I think people will continue to revisit his worlds endlessly on video. At least until intelligence is vast and cool and unsympathetic reduce our planet to smoldering ash. But before that happens, let me introduce the panel. Joining us for the first time, professional sound editor and designer who worked on such projects as The Expendables, Twilight Eclipse, and most recently the award-winning Transparent, Scott Kramer.
2: Hello. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: It's a pleasure to have you. And returning for his fourth, count them four panels... Composer of the Radio vs. the Martians theme song, Star Wars cosplay consigliere, and all-around good guy, Todd Maxfield-Matsumoto.
3: I'm very happy to be here.
1: Nice. We're happy to have you. And then, last but not least, Marcus Brody to my Indiana Jones, robot teddy bear to my Haley Joel Osment droid, Mike Gillis. (laughs) Good to be here, (laughs) as always. Hold on to your butts, people. We're rebooting the entire park from this Unix-based interface. It's Steven Spielberg on this episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Okay, Todd, I want to start with you. In In your esteem, where does Spielberg rank with visual storytellers with the likes of George Lucas, Kubrick, and Hitchcock? Or does he even rank with those that category?
3: Uh, absolutely, I think he ranks. Um, I'd put him above George Lucas. Oh. Um, I think in a lot of ways, from a visual storytelling standpoint, um, I think he's right up there with Kubrick and Hitchcock. I see him as a different sort of filmmaker altogether, Um much more of a populist filmmaker, hmm. but uh, I think he definitely belongs as one of the great American filmmakers.
1: Awesome. Uh, Mike, I, I think of you as a not only a great storyteller, but a guy who loves great stories. So tell me how you feel about Spielberg's storytelling.
0: I think it's great. I know that it's probably not considered cool nowadays. I don't really know why to be a Spielberg fan, <laughs> but I don't know how you couldn't be because every person of a certain generation and I don't think you can escape it, has seen at least five of his movies. And I don't know any other filmmaker where they're so ubiquitous and such a part of everyone's pop culture childhood That you can avoid seeing Spielberg, not just because it's like the free space and like bingo, (laughs) but in the sense that this stuff is so good and that people want to share it with their kids. People want to when they find out it's a Spielberg movie, they want to take their kids to it. They want to take their friends to it. They're like, I want to see what this is Hmm. because movies were different before and after Spielberg became big. Hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the same KT boundary that you see with sound coming into motion pictures, but I say it's probably comparable to the effect that Lord of the Rings had huh. on motion pictures, where entire genres that were not really mainstream became mainstream, entire elements and entire ways of appealing to an audience, entire kind of story, the idea of having these very basic... but Profound, not in the sense of it being a large scale story, but in the sense of being a very personal story. Hmm. And he's definitely a filmmaker that knows how to hit emotional notes in a way that really invests the audience in his work. And these are the sort of methods that everyone who came after him have been trying to copy. Everyone who's built on those sort of emotional notes in their own filmmaking. He really had an impact. Hmm. And I think he does deserve to rank with the big filmmakers Uh, of all time.
1: uh, Well said. And and Scott, I'd like to hear from your take on a professional side. I mean, is Spielberg's importance just his ability to put asses in seats? Or do you see him having a more prominent role in in the craft of filmmaking?
2: Well there was no blockbuster film before Steven Spielberg. I think I think he he began he took movies from the 70s, you know, the post studio system into the 80s blockbuster pantheon, you know that world and that is why oh, so many people don't like him and resent him and that's why he's one of the most important directors ever. Um because like Mike said there was no, you know, that it, he's a clear dividing line between how movies used to be and how they are now and i think that you know yeah he can put people in seats and he can sell tickets and i think that in my view uh something can be great because it's popular and hmm. that it, it isn't necessarily uh judged objectively it's art it's we don't have any yardstick for it um hmm. Well,
1: let's explore that. I actually want to explore that bit of there. Uh, if, if there is truly a, a resentment that people have for what Spielberg is or for what he represents, can someone, I mean, I, I don't feel it, but can someone here articulate what that is and try, to, try to, to explain it to someone who may not be familiar with why he might be looked down upon?
0: Well, I don't think it's considered edgy. It doesn't necessarily Mm. push the boundaries anymore because he created the boundaries that exist as they do now. Mm. And I think looking back on it, um, I know I saw this story once when someone was talking about going through a music education program. And one of the things that they did in that program were listen to music in the chronological order in the context of their time Mm. and saying that a lot of the things that we consider classic rock or music that we're used to hearing was revolutionary at one point and that we've lost the ability because to see that for as revolutionary because we've seen that become ubiquitous. We've seen these things that became revolutionary took over this entire art form and one he said it was the music of Jimi Hendrix. Hmm. That Jimi Hendrix are so used to hearing Jimi Hendrix, we grew up hearing like Voodoo Child, but there was a time where that was like a brick through a glass window. Right. And we're so used to seeing this sort of big budget epic storytelling that tugs at the heartstrings that we don't remember that this came out of the 1970s where a lot of art, and I think Star Wars was part of this brick through the glass window too, was very cynical, it was very try-to-find-yourself, very disillusioned, Hmm. and it was very subversive. And what we saw was sort of a return to old-school sentimentality and optimism in a lot of these films, that there were good guys and bad guys again. And I think that we don't respect... The things that he's done because everyone is doing them now.
1: Right, right. You know, as I heard you your sort of intro bit there, Mike. I was thinking you talk about him being a personal filmmaker. There's this idea if you were one of these highfalutin people who studies film or at least at least pretended to in college. There's this idea of the auteur theory, and so for people who aren't familiar, it's like the notion that um there is an author to the film and that film is the director and it's and the film itself although it's collaborative it is the singular vision of that person and i think it's i think it's controversial because it's not merely one person's work it's not a painting with a painter you know in interviews spielberg links a lot of his personal experiences to the formulations of his popular characters you know like the precocious child with the absent father um but funnily enough about Spielberg is he's not a writer-director. He doesn't write these movies. These are not coming—the words and the scenarios are not coming directly out of his head. But his films, they do have a noticeable thematic threads that tie them together. So my question is, is, is he just really good at picking scripts that he can put himself into? Or does his vision break through collaboration? Because there is a Spielberg something to his movies.
2: I think it's uh, optimism. And I think that's the thing that rubs some people the wrong way is that his films are almost always optimistic and he can take a, a horrible scenario and find uh, something to rally behind and something to, you know, give people faith. And hmm. um, there aren't a lot of the auteur filmmakers that do that kind of thing. And Well, 18th... normally they're
1: writers too. I mean, I think that's the point is that normally auteur filmmakers are the writer directors and that's yeah. not him.
2: So maybe he picks those kind of stories to tell and those kind of scripts. Um, and I think that's part of what makes him so popular. And I think if he's controversial at all among film people, it's for that reason. Because uh, the films are so optimistic.
3: Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I think that while he does, he's never really credited as a screenwriter, I think a lot of times, especially in his earlier films... Um, I think he is very involved in that process. For instance, Carl um, Gottlieb. If you read the Jaws log, which is a great read, mm-hmm. um, he, you know Carl Gottlieb was not only the reporter in the movie, but he was the screenwriter. Um, they were, even though it was based on a novel, you know, it's significantly different than the book, as is per usual, right? Um, they were rewriting that script. Usually, they'd write the next day's scenes the night before. Mm. Um, They really were going in, and it was largely him and Steven Spielberg in the same house. They lived in the same house during the (laughs) principal filmmaking, along with several other people. Um, But they would stay up drinking and rewriting scenes like crazy, sometimes from scratch, rewriting from scratch for the next day. So I think he really, between that and you hear about how much the editing process, uh, again, with his earlier films, I can't remember his editor's name that he used forever. Um, but she was really instrumental in the storytelling aspect of of the movies, um, and the trust that he put in her. I think that I think he's very aware of the story, um, and I, I think he has his hands in it a lot more than is credited. Hmm.
2: And also remember that many writers, screenwriters, write for specific directors. And if right. you're trying to sell a, a script to Amblin Entertainment, you're going to write it with Spielberg in mind.
1: Sure.
0: Yeah, and the other thing, too, is it isn't just that he's ready there to swoop in on movies and scripts that he likes, going, that's mine, I'm going to give it myself. He was always incredibly generous. One of the things that I really like in Spielberg is that you look at this huge list of movies that he's made, and I actually wrote these down <laughs> because if any filmmaker had made even a quarter of these, I think they would deserve to be in the same pantheon as people like Hitchcock and... Uh, it's it's incredible because I'm looking at this list, and I actually had to whittle this down from IMDb because it was insane. I'm talking Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Jaws, E.T., Jurassic Park, Lincoln, Munich, the Indiana Jones series, Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List. That Those are the movies he made, but what were the movies that he liked the script and he wanted to get it made, but he didn't necessarily have to make it himself? He was willing to share that. Right. A lot of people with that kind of clout and... You cannot downplay the kind of clout this guy had in the 1980s, not just in terms of money, not just in terms of what he could get studios to do, but in terms of what he could get made, that having him involved in a project, even as an executive producer, was a guarantee it was going to get made. And he was willing to foster and share that clout with a lot of people as a sponsor, that there are people like, say, Joe Dante, Mm-hmm. who did Gremlins in Inner Space. Those are two movies that Steven Spielberg was a producer on. Back to the Future by Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis would not have gotten made if Spielberg hadn't gone to bat for it. Right, right. So it's not just that these movies, which all have that same kind of optimism about them, it's regular folks getting thrown into unusual circumstances, sometimes with the supernatural or the science fiction elements, but he's willing to share that success and ride that wave because he clearly can't make five movies a year. Right. I mean, it was a crazy, like you said, he made Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year in 1993. So even he has his limits. But he's not greedy. And that's something I think is really unusual and I think really it, laudable well, about him.
1: Well, I mean, let's let's take the devil's advocate position. If he is credited as producer for five, six, or seven projects a year, most of which are not going to be his own movies, um how much of these are bear the stamp of his creative process, and how much of it is just being like, well, he can put his name on these things and he just wants to turn a profit
2: on them? like well, I, I think there's a certain amount of that going on. I mean, if like this is the new template for a a movie mogul, like a JJ. J. Abrams does all the same things, and Spielberg probably started that, you know, he might have because right. he had a production company a long long ago and was optioning scripts and buying properties and you know he he comprises like a quarter of the lot at universal you know just what? with his stuff wow
1: yeah yeah and uh, but my thought of, my thought about it is is yeah there's a lot of stuff that that bears the name of Steven Spielberg like Animaniacs for example mm-hmm. which Animaniacs is hilarious and has its own like it has its own relevance to being a crazy Postmodern pop culture force in what what it was, but I don't see anything of the fingerprints of Steven Spielberg on it except for the fact that his name appears in the title. So I don't actually know what it means when you say something like "Freakazoid" is executive produced by Steven Spielberg. What does that mean?
2: I think it varies. Um, and, you know, some things like the Bridges of Madison County, he, he was instrumental with and other things he probably had very little to do with. But if he if he's going to be judged, it pro- should probably be just by what he directed. Fair enough.
0: I, I guess I could see that, but I don't think you should downplay this stuff, too, because his name gets things made. And a lot yeah. of this stuff, Back to the Future, had a hard time getting greenlit it bounced to a lot of studios. One of them that it went to was Disney, who freaked out at the idea of this girl who did not know this was her time-traveling son and getting a crush on him. They really <laughs> were bothered by that, and they wanted nothing to do with it. But it could have died in that moment when Disney didn't want the film. But Steven Spielberg kept it alive. Hmm. People were willing to have meetings because he was a producer. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not something that happens a lot. The same thing with, you know, like I said, Joe Dante, who I think is an incredibly underrated filmmaker. He's somebody who did Gremlins and Innerspace and The Burbs and Burbs. a lot of these movies where mm-hmm. you can see the fingerprints of Spielberg on his career. And a lot of people in many ways were mentored by him and got their foot in the door in the industry because of him. And I think he sees in their work and in their scripts stuff that he would like to make if he had the time. But he's not going to go, I don't have time to make it. It's off my radar. I don't give a shit. Mm. He instead goes, no, there's something here. I want this movie to get made even if I can't do it. Mm. Even if I just have to do the business work, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to be involved in that. And, I mean, looking at just the stuff he's had his name on, even as a producer, that's incredible. Like, The Goonies. Right. That was my well, childhood he was, movie. He
1: was the second unit director on Goonies, too. So it's not as if that there wasn't there were literally Spielberg shots in that movie. So. That's true. I yeah. think
0: he did all the pirate ship stuff. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly. He did work with him. He was uh, the American American Tale, Hmm. Land Before Time. I mean, a lot of the stuff. He got his clout to get an animation company with Don Bluth that for many years was a rival to Disney. Right, and actually outgrossed them at the box office a number of times. I mean, he did uh, producing work on A Wish for Wings at Work, which is a Bloom County comic strip Christmas special. <laughs> for te- it, you never saw no, that? Oh, God, no. It's the only animation that we ever got with the berkeley Breathed characters. Hmm. And it was hmm. actually really well made. I think they got the guy who played Radar on MASH to do the voice of Opus. <laughs> but that was a Steven Spielberg joint. I mean, he didn't hmm. direct it, but I'm pretty sure his name helped get that thing made. I sure. mean, it's not necessarily Garfield. It's a lot more subversive than that. and. A lot of things that would not have normally gotten made, and we think of it as again it's not revolutionary now it's not a risk now, hmm. but it was then, right. and his name got it made
1: yeah there's a little there's a little difficulty in in doing the post facto uh looking back on it because we we now know that he's there there these are ground rules that he himself set, but I'd actually like to go back and and look
3: sort of at the beginning of his own film so we can talk about what he's done um there is a- Before we oh, do that, I want to jump ahead, in Dan. on that. Go ahead. Uh, I think it's important to really divide his career sort of in half, um, in, particularly in terms of um, production credit. Uh, I think the stuff he was involved in in the 80s, uh, which is most of the things that you mentioned that are of quality, that he was a, a producer, or executive producer, that his name was attached to, but he didn't direct, um, I think that they, those feel a lot more like Spielberg. You can see the, the thumbprints on those. Uh, whereas after the, like the mid-90s, I think you're really looking at Spielberg almost entirely as Spielberg the mogul, right? Mm. And you don't see his fingers, you don't see his his work, his influence on those things as much. Uh, I think increasingly so. I mean, you're you're looking at post DreamWorks, post Katzenberg, right? Uh, Spielberg, and he really is looking at it. I think a lot of a lot more as a business because yeah, I don't see
1: any Spielberg fingerprints on the Transformers movies. At no, all.
3: I I think it's kind of like right. when you see Walt Disney
0: presents. I mean, Walt Disney has been dead for several decades, and that puts the, the lie to Walt Disney Presents, but it's a brand name rather than an actual person's input. And so oh, you earlier. have to
3: ask, when earlier you said, you know, it seems like Spielberg sees something that he would like to make but doesn't have the time to, so he lets someone else. Um, did he really want to make Transformers? I hope not. <laughs> so I think there's a real I don't difference. Know.
2: I don't know. I mean, I Transformers was a big movie for me because I was at this point in my life where I was too good for uh blockbuster movies and i thought you know i liked art film and that's all i wanted and i remember seeing it in the theater with a bunch of people in silver lake and we were all having a blast and i realized this is actually great in a certain way and Maybe he did want to make it, you know? Mm. Maybe so he, it was maybe it, well, he wanted to make
0: it and he knew it would make a lot of money. Hmm. Yeah, well, somebody needs to pee on Stanley Tucci. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the movie I've always wanted to do. Maybe I wanted to do it in Schindler's List, but the ratings board said no, no golden showers. <laughs> I I got to fit it in somewhere. No, that's Stanley Tucci. It was um What's John his his Turturro. John Turturro. Yes. We need to have yeah. a John Turturro robot I, I, golden shower. I would also movie. like <laughs> Stanley very... Tucci to be pissed on. who <laughs> wouldn't?
1: <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah. Further to that point, I mean, I, I this thinking about Spielberg took me back to a previous panel that we had done about Hayao Miyazaki, and uh, there was this problem of relating who Hayao Miyazaki was to a Western audience. And so the the thing was, oh, he's Walt Disney of Japan, even though the two don't really mat- mesh. He wasn't at all. Um, Hayao Miyazaki is the Spielberg of Japanese animation, I'm realizing now. Not just a filmmaker who has a unique presence and who has these themes that are common, but also a producer that's incredibly
0: prodigious is there. So I just want to throw that out there as a callback. I I guess I can see that too. And I think there's certain things that are so universal that there's kind of a human language to it that I think where there are Japanese animated movies that I just have no in on, there's no entry point for me to get emotionally involved... With Miyazaki, it's so easy because he just knows human language. He knows the visual storytelling that pulls you into it. I think Spielberg does as well. I think right, that's right. what he really is. is right. Spielberg understands people's psychology. And yeah, he knows yeah. what it is that takes to get a person involved in a storyline. I mean, really think about what Jaws and Close Encounters and these other movies were. Is A lot of these kind of plots, like there's a killer shark. There are aliens kidnapping people. A, a boy, meet, a Lonely Boy Meets an Alien. These are drive-in movies.
1: Right. That's true.
0: These aren't the sort of movies that get a mainstream audience, let alone a mainstream budget. And I think in a lot of the ways that George Lucas took things that he remembered from his past and said, OK, let's make that again, but make it good this time.
2: <laughs>
0: I think that he said, what if I did this with actual craftsmanship? What mm-hmm. if I did this with actual emotional heart to it? What if I said there's an actual emotional core to this story And I can try to get somebody who's not normally wanting to go watch a movie about an alien and make them cry, outright cry. Grandma is crying because of the relationship between this little boy and an alien in a way that she never would have watched like The Day the Earth Stood Still or uh, This Island Earth or any of these other movies out there, (laughs) which are really directed at sort of a drive-in sci-fi audience.
1: That's true. Yeah. It's funny because – in culling all this stuff together, I can't. It's really hard to find concrete things to criticize about Spielberg to say he just doesn't cut the mustard for X Y Z. And one one thing that I've I in reading uh, I, that there's some criticism is about the overt sentimentality. Um, sentimentality is a big part of his movies, um, and that the idea that maybe that sentimentality can sort of wash out the grit and the naked drama. Of some things by making it too, too much of a bygone, too much of a grease on the lens sort of moment. And I don't know if any of you guys feel like, yeah, sometimes he lays it on too thick.
0: I guess you could say that, but I think that there's a Spielberg is very much the sort of filmmaker that I put in the same emotional part of Mike's brain category that I put Superman or Captain America hmm. or Willy Wonka, where you love this thing when you're six years old. You love it purely because it's sort of aimed at you. But there's elements of it you don't necessarily understand, but it's fun and it's cool. And then you get to the age of, like, 12 to 15, which I think is the worst era of any human being's life. You have the worst haircut, (laughs) you like the worst music, and you just instinctively hate everything you loved as a kid. That's, you know, Superman's lame. He doesn't do this. I like the Punisher. I want something that's gritty and mean and angry at the world, and it's all about how nobody understands me and how everything is stupid. And then you get to, like, the age of 30... You're just like, man, that's some dumb shit I liked when I was 13. What's really awesome is what I liked when I was six. And I think the trajectory you have with Spielberg is that you go through that adolescent period of what you enjoy, what your appetites are for pop culture, and you go through that. Spielberg is just not cool to a 12 to 15-year-old. But when you get to 30, a lot of that stuff, which has a certain air of nostalgia about it, becomes not only palatable, but you understand, not only is this stuff really emotionally powerful, but there's a craftsmanship behind it. I mean, that's the thing we were talking about Transformers. Transformers and Michael Bay and those kind of blockbusters that we see now, there's technical craftsmanship, but there isn't a lot of heart to it. It's a lot mm-hmm. of noise and explosions. And I'm sorry, Scott, you may have enjoyed it, but I really didn't. <laughs> um, I, I see a movie that is basically trying to hit... Instead of those emotional spots in somebody's brain to pull them in, instead of aiming that at people's brains and sort of this like getting people emotionally involved, it's doing that with money. Hmm. And I don't see Hmm. Spielberg as ever somebody that's ever been truly as cynical as a Roland Emmerich or as a Michael Bay that even his worst movies... I can see good things in them and I can see what they were trying to be or what they could have been. And I can Mm. still see there's an emotional heart there. They never feel not just cynical in the tone of the movie, but cynical in the motivation for making the movie and what the decisions you made going into the movie. Mm.
1: Scott, what, what do you feel about sentimentality?
2: uh that it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that, it, I mean I do see that uh the a lot of the films are really candy coated and uh there are moments where that are just seem so on the nose in mm. two, in you know in 2014 going back and watching them but they worked so well on me when I was that age you know and they work so well on you even watching them again if you just decide to go with it. But a lot of blockbuster filmmaking is about getting the audience to sign on to you know to to what to the ride that we're on and Mm -hmm. it may not be if you look at it with a critical eye it might fall down but if you just get in the theater and and embrace it that you'll have a great time Mm -hmm. and that's what a lot of his films are about and uh and i i agree with mike i mean i i don't think there were cynical motivations behind uh many or if any of these films mm. in that, and that's really uh, great mm. and S- rare S-
1: now todd as a as a as a father as someone who now fulfills a recurring role in spielberg films about uh, that that tense relationship between emotional or physical dis- uh, separation between children how do you how do you see when you go back and watch films now that are spielberg because that's such a major
3: component of them um how do you feel about the those parts of the films that's a uh, i think that's a great question because um i think you know, I don't think he lays it on too thick I th- because mm-hmm. I think usually it, it comes across as sincere mm-hmm. and it can be as, in that regard it can be as thick as, as he wants because it feels real it feels like he means it and I think he appeals to, everyth- everyone understands that he appeals to a, ch- a childhood sense of wonder mm-hmm. but there's more to it than that. I think as children, as young children, we tend to experience a lot more emotionally than people give us credit for. Um, anger and frustration and this incredible sadness a lot of time times as a child you can feel and i think he's able to pull into all of those things which might be why he tends to lose us during adolescence and then when we're adults he recaptures Mm. us especially i find when you become a parent um and 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 specifically to your question a father because that's like you said that's so much a part of of his movies that that relationship um it really hits home. It's very difficult for me to watch any of the Spielberg 80s movies mm-hmm. um, without without getting choked up a number of times. And sometimes yeah. it's over weird stuff, but it hits me. Right.
0: I had that same experience watching E.T. last night. and I hadn't seen it in a number of years. E.T. is a, one of the movies that I can't watch without at some point getting choked up or outright crying. Hmm. And there aren't a lot of movies that do that. Like the first five minutes of Pixar's Up will do that to oh, me. Oh, God. <laughs> That's Oh, my God. Somebody learned from Spielberg there. Uh, (laughs) If you really want to see some influence, a lot of Pixar stuff has that Spielberg influence all over it. But Uh E.T. has one thing visually, and this is something I hadn't noticed ever until watching it this time. I, I don't think an adult picks up on it, except on a subliminal level, which is, aside from Elliot's mom and Peter Coyote's character, you don't see adult faces. No. Mm. In that movie, only right. during the scene where the doctor It's kind of like
1: Peanuts, you're seeing their legs mostly, right? Yeah, it's actually,
0: yeah. it's very kind of uh, Dr. Claw, Nanny from the Muppet Babies kind of thing, where right. for the most part, most of Peter Coyote, until you see him, there's something very menacing because you only see him from like the waist, and you see his keys on his belt, and you hear the menacing music, and you see adults at a distance. You see them far away, and it's sort of the reveal of adults is kind of like the reveal of E.T. himself, which is like 15 minutes until you see it. You see Elliot's mom, because she's an adult that he can relate to. Every other adult is scary. They're always at a mid-distance. They're looking away. Even when they're kind of closer, you see a profile at most. Hmm. Peter Coyote was the first adult face you see. I think you see a couple quick shots of faces while the scientists are trying to save E.T., but they never come across as anything like background dialogue while they're talking. They're never full characters. So it really imbues this movie with a child's perspective. Hmm. Because aside from your mom, adults are fucking scary. (laughs) You never see the science teacher either. In the scene where he's supposed to dissect the frog. Oh,
3: he's the worst. You see him, it's kind of scary. You just <laughs> right. see his
0: hands moving. And the only time you see him, his full body, is when he's leading Elliot away to the principal's office. <laughs> As, they're all of these kind of scary, faceless authority figures. And that's what I think really gives that movie its real power is that it gets great performances out of children. Spielberg could work with kids, and this is before he even had kids. And right. I think he said in an interview that his work on E.T. is what solidified his desire to have children. Because he's amazing. like, I can be a dad. I understand what being a dad is kind of like now. Right. And I want to do this. And it's amazing the kind of naturalistic performances he's able to get out of young children, like Henry Thomas and Drew Barrymore in yeah. that movie. And they really have to carry it themselves because they're the ones that are emoting. They're the ones that are appearing in most of the scenes. And it's just incredible. And I don't think very many directors, if you want to see a director who's not good at working with even great actors, look at the way that George Lucas worked with children in Star Wars Episode I. It feels very wooden because children don't have the sense memory that they can pull from. As far as acting, and I guess what Henry Thomas, who played Elliot, pulled from was that his dog had died recently. Wow. And he was pulling heavily from that, especially during the audition process. I guess he didn't audition that well, but they did an improv scene where he was pulling from that memory. And it was so believable that Spielberg was like, okay, we have to stop right now. Kid, you got the job. Just please, I want to make you feel better. I feel bad doing this. It's really kind of a cool scene. And there's an element of that that I don't see. I think... Like the Todd, the word you used, sincerity, is a big part of it, is that he makes those things feel real because they don't feel put upon. It doesn't feel like somebody's a psychologist is watching with a clipboard somewhere seeing if he can make you cry. (laughs) It feels like somebody who's trying to take you on a genuine journey Hmm. with these people. And if you can do it with children, which is hard to do, and he just nails it Hmm.
1: in E.T. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back. So onward from the subject of sentimentality, I actually want to get to the point in his career when Spielberg actually wants to make a different type of movie, and that starts with 1985's The Color Purple, which is definitely his first attempt at doing a capital D drama um, that doesn't have some kind of fantastic elements. And um, I watched it for the... I had not seen it until uh, preparing for this show, and it was—it obviously it was a big deal. It was a big, very big movie, Interestingly enough, except for the way that he styled some of his shots, um, it was very—I very easily forgot that I was watching a Spielberg movie. Maybe in part because it was about bl- Black Americans, uh, Black American experience, and not about white suburbans, which is what most you know Spielberg movies are about. It just doesn't feel like a Spielberg movie, and maybe that's what makes it so impressive—that
0: he could pull that off. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I look at it now, where I don't think if somebody was going to make The Color Purple now. I don't think a lot of audiences would feel comfortable with a white director doing it. Right. And I think we're much more sensitive to these issues in a way than we were in the 80s because Spielberg really could do no wrong. And for him not only to attempt it, because if I was a filmmaker, I would feel uncomfortable doing it because I could so easily fuck this up. Well, I mean, I I also
1: consider the difficulty of doing a story that's well, one about the experience of a culture that you're that you're not in. Two, a period piece which always are difficult. He doesn't seem to have a problem with period pieces. 3 that deals with subjects like incest and uh, abuse and like it's such a strange like nexus of crazy taboo things that are very difficult to watch on a on in a movie, you know, the what is it that Fincher said David Fincher said about directing movies where you have to show things that are unspeakably horrible. He said you have to try to visualize things that make people want to turn away from the screen. And when doing that as a director, that's a really hard job.
0: But you have to make them not turn away Correct. from the screen, right. too. Correct. That's the hard part, is that you think of Spielberg to this point, that even when his movies are scary, there's still an element of comfort food to them. Right. And The Color of Purple is not a comfort food movie. No. No. And I think in a lot of ways, he kind of went into the deep end first, because at least with Schindler's List, as a Jewish American himself he has a certain amount of experience that he probably has a number of relatives who survived the Holocaust. Of course. And he has no in to this world that he's creating with Color Purple, and he did that one first. Right. So I have to wonder how many conversations he had about whether he was really the right person to do it or whether he had that kind of confidence that early in his career to take it on, because I could tell you I wouldn't have it. I I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd say... I'm going to find somebody who can tell this story, and I want to produce it, and I want to be a part of helping it get made. But I am so afraid that my perspective being outside of it is going to screw this story up, that all it's going to do is turn people against me, and not for what I was trying to pull off. But to overcome all of that and then nail it, that's hard. I mean, that like you said, that movie won so many Oscars, mm-hmm. and is still incredibly well thought of. Mm-hmm. So no, it's
2: interesting. Is it was uh, nominated, I think, for eleven, uh, but not for best director. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and uh, and one wonders if there, if the academy was saying, you know, why don't you go back to your popcorn movies? <laughs>
1: hmm. I, I mean, I mean, all all that I'll say about it is having seen it for the first time, as I felt like, uh, and now hearing you guys talk about what you think is a quintessential Spielberg movie. It is the optimism that the main character, the Seely character, retains mm-hmm. about the relationship between her and her sister that carries the audience through dealing with such a slog of terrible unsettling things that happen in the movie in fact i think halfway through the movie i was watching with my wife and she said this is the most horrible movie i've seen in my entire life and i was like oh shit
3: how are you how are you gonna end this then spielberg uh you know that tina turner was originally approached to play the lead role in that movie she's she's simply the best and she turned it down so that oh. she could do Mad Max 3. Oh, oh, oh well, wow. the thunder
1: the Thunderdome is pretty cool
3: though. It is. Yeah. She's a huge sci-fi fan and I think she <laughs> that was the wrong Spielberg movie for Tina Turner.
0: Yeah, but who runs Bartertown? <laughs> right. <laughs> who runs
3: Bartertown?
1: Oh, <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, we can move forward in uh, move forward in time. Of course there's Schindler's List, but uh to me I think the movie if you move past w- why Schindler's List was important for Spielberg as a director and how it became, it and Jurassic Park became this huge... Well, fuck it. Let's just talk Jurassic Park. How, okay. can, how can we not hit on Jurassic Park as being the movie that pulled him back from what what was a teetering of his career with Hook because it was a major
0: disappointment? I like Hook. I know that it's not a perfect movie and it has a lot of flaws in it, but it's a fun movie and go looking back on it, I think it's aged remarkably well. Yeah. for what it is. I think it's fun to see uh, Bob Hoskins play Smee. I think it's really fun to see Dustin Hoffman play Captain Hook, mm. which is a weirdly really good casting job, because if you'd seen that and not see it, it's kind of like the Heath Ledger Joker, where on paper you're like, what, really? Uh, no? Uh, really, really, you're going to get the guy from Rain Man to play Captain Hook? Actually? I was
2: shocked by how good Dustin Hoffman is in Hook. He is, he's amazing. He's so amazing. good. He's
0: really good. yeah, And it's such a great casting job, and it's one of those casting jobs that makes you go, you know what, I'm going to hold judgment back and see how this goes whenever I hear another casting job that just doesn't feel right. He makes it work. I think Hmm. that movie is a lot of fun. Certainly it's not perfect. It's kind of like... It's kind of like... um, (laughs) The The Dark Knight Returns for Peter Pan in a weird way. <laughs> the idea of an older, grittier Peter Pan coming back out of retirement to take on his old enemies and finding out if he's still relevant. It's kind of cool in that way. And it actually does it without being as just aggressively gritty or edgy as The Dark Knight Returns. It's not Frank Miller's Peter Pan. It's still Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And it still feels like a great Peter Pan movie. Hmm. Well, we can agree to disagree, as as
1: but I wanted to talk about Jurassic Park. Okay. So right. this is a sleeper. Hit. I actually remember in being in middle school and hearing people when the movie was supposed to come out in science class, hearing other people who had read the Michael Crichton book and they were like, holy shit, this is amazing. Um, well- Let's talk about it, Jurassic Park. Like, where where do you where did you fall on it when you were thirteen years old or fourteen years old or however much? And where do you fall on it now?
2: I i had never seen anything like it, and I was I was blown away, and it seemed so modern. I couldn't right. believe how how like technological that film was. It was the wasn't it the first one with those kind that kind of elaborate CGI?
0: I don't know. If it was the first. I know that Terminator Two came before that, but yeah. it, I don't think it was quite as I don't think it was as ambitious yeah, as but we, was. I think
1: we've talked about this visual effects in the 90s as it relates to early visual effects because in Terminator 2, they use the CGI so sparingly and usually in nighttime scenes and usually in places where the image was simple enough that... It it being CGI wouldn't distract. And for Jurassic Park, a lot of it's in the daytime, and that's really hard to do.
0: Um, Actually, I kind of come to a little bit of a disagreement on you here, is that a lot of that movie is shot at night, and the CGI is almost always at a distance, or it's in the dark and it's in the rain and Hmm. that was actually one of the things we talked about with blade runner is the thing that made blade runner work including the fact that it was shot on a studio lot which is the same lot they used for both gremlins and back to the future in the 50s (laughs) they just put a bunch of tubes and stuff on it the reason it still looked real instead of you know a studio lot with tubes and smoke is because they put smoke and they put it at night and put rain on it and those elements cover up for the fact that you're shooting on a set And you're using CGI or you're using a puppet. And I think one of the real strengths of Spielberg, I think probably his greatest strength is a conservatism when it comes to special effects. That you think Hmm. of him as these big special effect movies, but he always is very keenly aware of what the limits of what he can get away with those effects are. And he pulls it back like two notches and he goes, okay, that looks really cool, but let's not get carried away. Let's show it at night or let's show it at a distance. Like, all the full body shots you get of a lot of dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are usually pretty far away. And they're in motion, so it doesn't look fake in the way that say like the plane crash of Air Force One looks fucking terrible (laughs) or even a couple shots of the Enterprise in Star Trek 6 where they started doing some CGI over models. Those things stick out like a sore thumb now but you watch Jurassic Park that movie still looks good because it's a mix of animatronics in the places where it needs to be close up and it's a mix of CGI when it's far away or things that the animatronics simply cannot do. And a lot of people I think early Peter Jackson was aware of this too then he went off the fucking deep with a lot of the Hobbit movies where it feels like a video game. It's knowing what you can do with the special effects and knowing how much you can get away without pulling people out of it. Mm -hmm. And he always has a good idea of, okay, well, E.T. can't run, so Mm -hmm. I won't show him run unless there's a bunch of things obscuring him. Um, I know that I'm going to use, like, lens flare or something to cover up the fact that it's clearly a matte painting or something. Right. And little things like that. And I right. think he's really good at that stuff. Yeah. And I think Jurassic Park's the best example because you watch it and it still looks like a movie that could have been released this year.
3: Sure. I agree that it looks great overall. Um, and I was blown away in the theater by it. Um, there's so many, I have so many conflicting emotions about that movie. But uh, <laughs> one of the biggest things for me, um, having had quite a few years to really think about it now and watching it again recently, is that I think that the emotion in that movie isn't as sincere. Yeah. Mm, um, yeah. yeah I can agree. The, that. the Hammond, the John Hammond character, is extremely problematic for me. He's. He's supposed to be not just the kid's grandpa. He's supposed to be our grandpa mm. all the way through. He made a mistake. Right. And that's that's not the way Crichton wrote him. And I don't really care about keeping faithful to Crichton's vision on that. Right. But there's a reason why Crichton didn't write him that way. Um, and in earlier Spielberg movies, there's a really strong anti-establishment. Um, it's not how we think of him, but there is a really strong anti-establishment uh, thread throughout a lot of those. And that's not there with with rich grandpa there Um, (laughs) and and I think I don't really care too much about the characters or what they're going through in the movie I care about the dinosaurs and Mm. that to me is not Spielberg of old
1: yeah I mean it it, did the dinosaur craze precede Jurassic Park or did Jurassic Park explode the the now ubiquitous dinosaur craze in the throughout American culture.
0: Well, dinosaurs have always been cool. Oh, Kids, yeah. Everyone goes through the dinosaur phase. But no, I but think... there was
1: a certain point in time when there wasn't dinosaurs on every lunchboxes and gummy snacks and T-shirts and whatever. There was. And and, and now they're, and, and after that point, was it Jurassic Park that did it? Or... Jurassic
0: Park made it a lot cooler. Like, yeah. the fact that we even know what a raptor is is all Jurassic right. Park. Like, right. there are basketball right. teams that are like, the raptors? <laughs> that He created the new most popular dinosaur. They managed to dethrone the T-Rex. <laughs> right. <Even laughs> So at the end, the T-Rex kicks their fucking asses. <laughs> yeah, he does. That's like the shot of going like, fuck you, Raptor. This may have been your movie, but I'm still cooler. Throws him against that skeleton <laughs> Yeah, and has his battle cry. That's one of the few
3: Spielberg moments in that movie, I feel like. Mm.
0: You know what mm. I really love in Jurassic Park? And I know I've talked to the bad people with this privately, but I love the character Dennis Nedry. <laughs> He's the computer hacker played by Newman from Seinfeld. He's amazing. (laughs) I fucking love him. He's the best part of that movie because he's like this kind of like arrogant nerd who knows that he's indispensable and he's going to make you just as fucking just, oh, he makes you so angry at him because he knows that you can't afford to fire him.
2: Yeah, he has, Spielberg has a real understanding of the IT professional.
0: <laughs> that he does. Yeah, that's the best computer hacker in any movie. I think uh, Dennis Nedry and R two D two are my two favorite hackers in anything, and they're both kind of a pain in the ass. I thought uh,
1: I thought Alan coming in GoldenEye is pretty good. Oh, he's, I am invincible. Yes, he's he's great because he he obviously oversteps his bounds and he gets punished for it. Uh, well, well, well. Here was the thing that I wrote down about Jurassic Park is is. Is that um, will it be remembered as sort of his best his best of the best movies? Or do you think that it's already been overshadowed by the fact that it had a, a lackluster sequel that he directed and then Jurassic Park 3, which I think everyone just wants to forget about?
2: I think even on its own, it's it's really uh, a spectacle movie and it isn't going to be remembered nearly as fondly as some of his others. Hmm. Um, but it was great. It's great. But it's a, it is almost a different
0: kind of Spielberg movie. Yeah. I guess I can see that. I think that we forget now because we think of blockbusters as this ubiquitous thing. I bet you if we drove down to a movie theater right now, there'd be at least three blockbuster movies. And most of them we completely forget. I still remember Jurassic Park. Uh, I think it's always going to have a place in film history, not just from the special effects. It has a lot more heart than most modern blockbusters have. It's probably going to have more heart than Jurassic World is going to have. Right. Mm-hmm. because it still has the hand of Spielberg on the on the till. But I wonder if it is closer to what we typically think of as a blockbuster than what we expect from Spielberg. And maybe it was him evolving. It's like, it, like you said, Todd, this was a spectacle movie. This was all about the moments where something is blowing up or a special effect is happening. Like you said, we care about the dinosaurs. We don't care so much about the people. The hallmark of a classic Spielberg film is, yes, there's crazy stuff happening, but... I'm looking through the eyes of this person, and this person's experience is what it's all about. That was the beauty of Jaws. And Mm. I think this is an Mm. example of Spielberg with the special effects again. Knowing the limitations of what he could get away with that robot shark that they had built, this technological terror he'd constructed. (laughs) They thought he had built something that they could show on screen, but... They had built it for fresh water, and the minute they dropped it into the Atlantic Ocean, it just fucking broke. It was like R5-D4. It just like, pop!
1: <laughs> and,
0: <laughs> and it just fell apart. So they're like, okay, how can we still make this scary? So elements like the pontoons that they harpoon to it, something visual that tells you that the shark is there. And, of course, the ubiquitous fin. Right, that's what we think of sharks now—that dun and the fin coming. You only see the shark head-on, maybe for a total of five minutes in that movie.
2: Most- well, maybe then it was an accident. But I remember in interviews, people would talk about how. The the best part of Jaws was your imagination of what is this monster, not actually seeing it.
0: And the thing is, again, it's not the... That's a very Hitchcockian
2: thing,
1: too. It is. It's the tension
0: between the big moments. And how do you make that tension, the moment in between the big special effects moments, just as palpable, if not more exciting, than the bits where things are blowing up and it's biting Quint in half? So I think that's really when I want to compare the Jurassic Park version of Spielberg to the classic Jaws era Spielberg Mm -hmm. is that a good half of that movie doesn't involve the shark eating people or the big special effects moments. It's the dread. It's like Mm -hmm. that scene on the Mm -hmm. beach where we see various people playing in the surf and you're like, okay. Which one of these is the shark going to kill? The shark's going (laughs) to kill one of them. I already know what the front of the poster looks like. The shark is going to eat somebody. It's not going to be a, oh, I guess it was just a false alarm. Sorry, guys, we wasted your time with this movie. (laughs) There's there's no problem. Just go back. It's okay to open the beaches. So... (laughs) Instead, we know it's going to happen, and he knows that, so there's no spoilers there. So Spielberg takes full advantage. Okay, which, oh, is it the fat lady? Is he going to eat the fat lady? What about the dog? Oh, that kid on the, on the raft. Oh, God. Oh, God. And then when you don't see it, you don't see it so briefly. It's just a little bloody water spurts up in oh, this guy, and you're like, oh, God! <laughs> yes. And it's over really fast, and really the tension comes from all these people running and right. the chaos. And it's the tension that comes from Rob Sh- Roy Schneider in that movie. You were
1: going to say Rob Schneider, weren't you? Oh, my God. That would have been such Rob- a
0: worse movie. <laughs> Oh, see, that wouldn't have been the biggest movie of all time, <laughs> no. but Roy Scheider is so good in that movie, and he carries the emotional weight of just like, oh my God, oh my God, and being afraid, and having to work within these limitations that are put up with him by the mayor, the mayor of which who wears the greatest suits of all time.
3: <laughs> Larry Vaughn. That yes. guy is incredible,
0: especially that Willy Wonka fruit-stripe gumsuit, or the one that has a the little, the little anchors, anchors printed yes. on it. Yeah. It's great. I love that. He's like a cartoon character, but he won't let this guy close the beaches because it's all about tourism and that tension on this guy feeling responsible for any deaths that happen during this moment that's where the thing comes from not from the shark moments and right. a lot of the movie right. is guys on a on a boat three guys on a boat not knowing if they're even in the right place going oh my god are we going to catch it what are we what can we even do when it shows up right it's a very different movie and i think a lot of new fans that are used to current blockbusters I don't know. I just, I get so frustrated with hearing people under the age of 20 talk about Jaws when they see it because it's such an incredible landmark movie for us when they're used to that latter Jurassic Park style blockbuster. Yeah that they don't really process it and realize that this was a big deal or get caught up in the small emotional moments rather than hey look there's a dinosaur and it can open a door now we're fucked
1: <laughs> so we've we've uh, sort of charted spielberg into two separate periods but i want to suggest that there is actually a third the third act the third period and i like to look at, look at this as about the last decade the uh the sort of post Saving Private Ryan and afterwards. And, you know, you look at the movies that are sort of in this category, like the AI, the War of the Worlds, the Terminal, um, Munich and the last Indiana Jones uh, movies as being sort of really mediocre by comparison and it's not as if that you can ever say that um maybe with one exception which we could talk about later that you could say that spielberg has ever made just a terrible movie just a, a mistake of a movie excepting for lincoln which i thought for personal reasons of my own was a really was an amazingly good movie and well restrained um is the era of like Spielberg's mega smash movies and every movie being being awesome over when you think about the last 10 years has he in fact nuked his own fridge
2: <laughs> I think that Spielberg uh w- what we're seeing is like the the quintessence like the 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 old uh cliche of the aging artist and you know they they start to lose the fire when they get older but what's so funny about Spielberg is that His his, you know, later period where he's not as strong are still some solid movies. And I would argue that a couple of them, like Lincoln and War of the Worlds, are really pretty fantastic. Um, But, uh, yeah, I think that he's he has gone downhill a bit and he isn't considered as important as he used to be. Uh, And it's a little sad given that he was really like on top for so long.
3: I think he's Spielberg the mogul now, hmm. and I think hmm. when he makes a movie, even if he's passionate about it, I don't think it's the same. I don't think he's looking at it from the same lens at all. I mean, how could he? But he's not looking at the same lens as he did when he was, you know, the struggling director against the studio, you know, because let's let's keep in mind that while he was while he sort of ended the the rebellious '70s um, director period right. um, with the with the invention of the blockbuster. He still was, you know, he was at odds with those studios. Sure. Uh, Close Encounters. Wasn't he fired from Close Encounters at one point? I mean, so he, now he is the man. I mean, you, a studio needs Spielberg. You know what I mean? Um, and it's got to be difficult to look at it from, that same, um, from the same standpoint. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, too, is that his perspective, too. Remember when they did the 20th anniversary of E.T.? Yeah. And they actually did his own version of the special editions they did with Star Wars, which is that he's a different person than he was at the beginning of his career. And he's also a dad now. So, like, putting walkie-talkies, which has become sort of a South Park joke, in the hands of people at the roadblock, (laughs) rather than the shotgun they had. Because there's a close-up of the shotgun, and that's a moment that gives this real, like, holy shit, this is dangerous. We're not just having hijinks and running away from the police at this point. This just got real. And I think that There's a Spielberg that probably wouldn't have made Close Encounters now, because that is a movie about a dad who abandons his family to follow his own special destiny. Spielberg would never do that now, and I think the idea of having children in danger is a big part of it. I think Han Solo shooting second rather than first is that happening to George Lucas, where Hmm. he's like... I don't know if I feel comfortable with my kids watching a movie where a good guy does this. Hmm. And that's hmm. really what changed. He's not going to admit that. He's always going to have some bullshit reason. But I think it's the same thing that happened to Spielberg, is that he's an older person now. He's a dad now. He's a business owner now, where he's not going to take those sorts of risks because he's not just looking at it as the hotshot director. And this is my movie. He's thinking it as the producer, who's the guy who's running the studio, going, how is this going to affect the bottom line? How do we make the next movie bouncing off of this? And it's made him a great deal more conservative. Right. On the other hand, I think he's a victim of his own success because so many movies look like Spielberg movies now that, like you said, they don't feel as special. They don't feel like this is an unusual thing that's come out it, because everyone is kind of making their own version. I mean, he was a producer on Super 8, which in many right. ways is a tribute film to 80s Spielberg that J.J. Yeah, J. J. Abrams did.
1: Right. Yeah. And that that seems like a pretty strange paradox to be producing a film that's an homage to you. Yeah. So...
0: I don't think it's as bad as what M. Night Shyamalan did with the secret history, or the, was it we, the tragic we, we secret? Don't, we don't need to bring M. Night <laughs> yeah. Shyamalan that, that, into this. That because Night that's does. essentially him filming himself, giving himself a blowjob, and that's not what this is. This really feels like somebody else is, he's paying for the blowjob, but he's <laughs> he's not performing it himself. Somebody else who genuinely loves his work and whose career was based on it is still doing it. And it was actually a well-made movie. I liked Super 8. I mean, it's not a perfect movie. I don't think it's necessarily a super memorable movie because it again is an homage it's like a cover band movie mm-hmm. but it's a really well done cover band it's good. movie yeah, yeah. it's good so I, I guess that's the main thing is Spielberg is a different good now
1: yeah and if, and if there's another sort of just general area to talk about I think that Saving Private Ryan also represents kind of a crazy departure, and for for the listeners who who follow film, um, film is fashion. So there's sometimes when a filmmaker does something that is so awesome that uh, filmmakers that are coming after them are just referencing them over and over. And of course, a lot of this happens with Spielberg earlier in his career. Saving Private Ryan, however, was a bit of a sea change for war movies. That's true, especially World War Two World War Two related movies. Um, the way in which he shot that. Uh, cross-processed film and with the shutter angle emphasizing like the like bits of things blowing up and having these huge set pieces action set pieces cgi-laden set pieces with long takes incredibly long takes was kind of uh was kind of revolutionary and you after it you have just like war movies world war Two movies that are aping it over and over again so it's kind of important that he did end up making what is a super fucking grim serious battle movie which he really didn't do before
0: it also is the first movie that I can remember that used shaky cam in battle sequences, right. and that's right. something that's everywhere now. If you want to talk about the latest uh, thing that Spielberg does well, that translates to the entire industry, the idea of making a scene feel chaotic by making it hard to see it, because so you really feel like you're in the shoes of those soldiers, sure. yeah. that you're not watching this the way you are in a video game, standing back from a screen with a controller. You're in it, and it's chaotic, and it's scary. Right
2: that That film was a big deal, and i, I just a little tidbit uh, in my business in the sound business, that's one of the most commonly referenced uh, films for sound because of the the opening sequence on the beach right. uh, with the, the battle there. There, were, there there was really nothing like it before that
1: also I, I do know about the uh, the, so the sound design of that movie. there are parts of it that are they are curiously restrained and they use they use that restraint. Uh, to, to interesting effect so like the idea of uh, the sound in some some parts the background sound fading away and then all you're hearing are like the clump of boots walking by and maybe a bullet ricocheting but yeah. you're not, but you're not actually hearing everything else as a way to emphasize like just kind of the chaos the, the calm in the middle of the storm in this fucked up battle you know? yeah
2: that muffled sound thing happens on the beach and that was uh that was kind of new and you started seeing it copied over and over and over again in soundtracks, in loud movies after that. Mm-hmm. the um, We're going to change the whole audience's perspective by going real quiet here.
3: I, yeah. I think uh I think you're you're dead on about that and during this whole discussion I keep thinking about the movie Children of Men which Oh I,
0: yeah.
3: That borrows so heavily from a visual and sound stamp standpoint from Saving Private Ryan. Yes. And it doesn't you wouldn't think this is a World War Two inspired movie. No it feels like a modern day like Beirut or crazy Iraq type shit. Sure. And it's not. It's really referencing things like Saving Private Ryan and and along with that I just want to tell you guys a a story about that um Saving Private Ryan when it was new in the theater been out less than a month I was working at a Best Buy in the video department and uh this older fellow came up to me one day and wanted to buy Saving Private Ryan you know as they do they think it's out and uh (laughs) it was was adorable and, and I was trying to explain this to him uh and he didn't understand but he he asked me, you see the movie? I said, yes, I did. And he said, you know, the opening sequence, the nor- storming the beach in Normandy. I said, yeah. And he put his hand on his sh- on my shoulder and he teared up, just instantly teared wow. up. And he says, it was worse than that. Right. And he walked out. But obviously that movie impacted him. It was right. probably the first movie he's ever seen that spoke to his experience.
1: Yeah. And that was actually, and uh, finding controversial things about Spielberg, which there are precious few. Um, yeah. There were, those were so brutal. The way that they portrayed it, there were some um, stories about veterans uh, having to leave the theater actually yeah. because yeah. it was because it was like it was a little too intense. And there's also, I'd say, from another side that um, that as as sort of heart wrenching and as as sort of shock inducing as the movie actually was, they also the movie doesn't ever doesn't ever find a way to ask the question, well, how can how do we ever prevent this kind of horror from happening again? It's just sort of like, well, this was a this was a just war. That ended up happening, and there's heroics that are happening there, but there's no we don't we don't really ask any questions about what's happening. We just sort of put ourselves through this gauntlet and come out the other side feeling frazzled and feeling woozy and emotional.
3: Well, you know, I haven't seen the movie since since it was originally out in the theater, so my my memory is a little foggy on it. But do we ever see the Nazis doing like doing Nazi stuff in that movie? No, I, I do so. remember a scene I think with um, Adam Goldberg. Goldberg. I think so. Uh, where he's he's fighting hand to hand up in the second floor no, with the Nazi, yeah. and um, it's it's such a brutal scene. Oh, no, It's terrible. But the Nazi is not a bad guy. No, there's nobody's a bad guy. There are two guys that have to do this, and I I think it's not a movie that takes any sort of moral stance. If anything, I think it kind of points to the fact that you know to, it's anti-war.
2: That's kind of a theme in in his work. In addition to like the the childlike movies and they, the optimism is there's some films of his are just like making a statement that some things are horrible and they have no redeeming qualities and they are just horrible and we should remember them but but <laughs> uh, like
1: but on the on this point of the of the sort of traumatic nature is i've heard that this term applied to it exploitation. W- i mean was it exploitative was the violence exploitative in the way that they portrayed it because you would you would never actually really want to portray a real movie like real combat would be
0: well, well you, what would, you, mean, you but
1: wouldn't want to do it you simply would not want to i do get it.
0: that but i guess i'm kind of curious what you mean by exploitative well
1: uh consider the difference between the violence in rambo one and
0: the violence in rambo three i don't think that right? we got to rambo three with Saving Private Ryan, I think. No, that, no, no,
1: but I'm just saying, you know, the difference is, is that one is violence that is restrained in service of telling the story, and the second is violence being there as a, just an adjunct to the the motion, the kinetics of the, the movie. The fuck yeah violence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's not fuck yeah violence. I think that it, whether the violence is aspirational, because the difference between uh, First Blood and Rambo 3 is a world of difference, because in the first movie, it's a damaged person, who's been broken and they're running into the woods. In the third movie, it's a superhero gunning down people in the thousands. There's like a comma in his death toll. (laughs) And it's almost—it's not about, look what this poor man is being forced to do and you're damaged and look at the way you treat him. It's look what a badass that guy is. And I don't think we have that look what a badass that guy is moments in Saving Private Ryan because of fights exactly like the one that Todd was talking about between the German and Adam Goldberg, because he's stabbing him with a knife, and both of them are terrified. Yeah. There's not a moment of, you know, like, take this, Kraut, let's see. It's I mean, right. Indiana Jones has fun comic violence, and the Nazis are super villains in it. These aren't those Nazis. Right. That...
1: Well, and Spielberg said after Schindler's List that he would never make a parody uh, of Nazis ever again. He would never have that in his movies. And he certainly didn't in Saving Private Ryan. Or Schindler's List. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and to that point, I was just thinking about exploitative and violence. Um, War Horse, which I don't think was... I thought was a decent Spielberg movie um, and it takes place during a different conflict of course, that actually is even more of a sort of an anti-war like, oh my God, this was senseless sort of a movie in the in the suffering in it, the human and animal suffering that it was trying to portray. So he, he definitely has that as one of the themes that he's exploring. Okay. Um, well, we've, ab- we've about abolished that topic. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back with High Point, Low Point. And we're back with our segment we like to call High Point, Low Point. It's where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. We're going to go start first with Low Point. Todd, what is your low point for Steven Spielberg?
3: I've been thinking about this for for a while now. Low point for Steven Spielberg. I think he's got quite a few low points. Um, But the biggest one for me has to be the betrayal that is the last Indiana Jones movie. Oh. Okay. Yeah, which has not really come up in this discussion. But, man... uh, there was there was really no reason why they had to do it at that point. I would have loved to have seen another one. And I have no problem with the age of Harrison Ford or any of the, those things. I think we all can... I don't know. I assume we all agree that it's not a very good movie. Um, but I won't let my kids see it. <laughs> like, I'll let them watch Walking Dead before I let, let them watch that Indiana Jones piece of shit. I can't stand it. it. It's just a massive betrayal of everything that's Indiana Jones. It's like if you gave... Somebody who didn't really know or care about Indiana Jones, if you gave them the franchise, that would be that movie.
1: It would be a boner killer from the beginning, right?
0: Yeah,
3: yeah! Total boner killer. Haven't
0: we learned this about filmmakers, that especially when somebody goes away from a franchise for a very long time and it's this great moment where they're coming back and it's like, this is going to get great again. I mean, This happened with All-Star Batman and Robin with Frank Miller, hmm. complete piece of shit. It's like a oh, cry yeah. for help right. illustrated. <laughs> we had the same thing with the Aliens franchise and right. Ridley Scott and Prometheus is a giant mess. Uh, we had this with George Lucas and Star Wars. I don't know. Is there a certain point where somebody shouldn't go back because it's inevitable that whatever they do, it's going to disappoint us?
3: I I don't know about that personally. I just have to say that when you go for so long where none of them could agree on a script and none of them could agree on the particulars and if they still find a way to get it made anyway. Well,
1: yeah. How many times did they revise that script? how i mean it's dozens of times
3: it's, it's all about dollars at that point right. now's the time
1: well if you there was a great Steven Spielberg interview where this is after it's being released obviously but they're promoing it and and Steven Spielberg says at least 3 times in this interview oh i never really wanted to go back and do it again but george convinced me oh i didn't really actually want to do it again so it's clear even from even though he's being lighthearted about it and it's his movie he's
0: like i didn't actually want to do this movie it sounds like when you say it 3 times that george has clearly threatened him with violence <laughs> <laughs> He's afraid of George Lucas. (laughs) All
1: right. Well, Mike, what's your low point for Steven Spielberg?
0: Actually, it involves George Lucas, believe it or not. Uh, It's not the collaboration of uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I think it's a bad movie. I I think the thing that's worse about it is the fact that it's forgettable. There are pieces of it that I think are good, but it's not that. It's not that collaboration with George Lucas. It's one that we didn't get. It's that in 1983... We as an audience were robbed of seeing a Return of the Jedi directed by Steven Spielberg. Oh. This was a thing that didn't end up happening. It could have. And the people involved wanted it to happen. But let me give you a bit of backstory. George Lucas got into a pissing match with the Directors Guild of America. This is like the union that ostensibly is there to protect... The rights of directors and filmmakers but for whatever reason they got a hair up their ass in 1980 to go after George Lucas for Empire Strikes Back and the reason is that one of the rules the Directors Guild of America has if you're a member is that that film is required to have the director and producer in the opening credits you sort of see the problem here yep. Star Wars doesn't have opening credits That it goes, bam, Star Wars, hits the theme, does the crawl, goes right into the movie. You don't actually get credits until the end. There's end credits to Star Wars. There aren't opening credits. And for whatever reason, the Director's Guild decided to go after him for this. They didn't have opening credits to the first Star Wars, and they didn't seem to care then. But for some reason, they really went after George Lucas and... Irvin Kirshner, who was the director. And they had actually leveled a fine of a quarter of a million dollars at both of them. Jesus. So they were really thrown. They actually tried to get Empire Strikes Back pulled out of theaters because it didn't have opening credits. Wow. It was really ugly. It escalated. George Lucas, who actually comes across as a really cool guy in this, actually paid both Irwin Kirshner's fine of a quarter of a million dollars and his own for a quarter of a million dollars. So he paid a million dollars to this organization and then publicly and dramatically quit. I believe he had like an ad in the Hollywood yeah. Reporter wow. where he basically, it's a bit of a fuck you mic drop moment where one of the biggest directors in Hollywood just says, I don't want anything to do with you guys anymore. You're getting in the way of my art. This is the exact mm-hmm. opposite you know purpose that you exist to fo- to do so you get them a couple more years later. So you already had this growing friendship and professional partnership between George Lucas and Steven Spielberg on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sure. They managed to create a massive film franchise out of that. Raiders of the Lost Ark was a massively cool, massively awesome movie mm-hmm. that did both the things that Spielberg and Lucas both love, which is nostalgia, taking things from the past and updating it, giving it a modern sensibility, giving it a sense of fun and optimism. They're both big on that stuff, and they just nailed it. This is a great partnership. Right. So what could top that? What could top the Raiders of the Lost Ark? What if taking the biggest filmmaker of all time, Steven Spielberg, who had at first with Jaws, the highest grossing film of all time, then George Lucas, who topped him, he's working on this thing too. And then again, right after that, E.T. tops uh, Star Wars for the biggest grossing film of all time. These are titans of filmmaking. These guys are fucking huge. And that's when the big announcement sort of comes very slowly, which is that, George Lucas wants Steven Spielberg to direct the third Star Wars movie wrapping up the trilogy. At that point, it was called Revenge of the Jedi. He was on board. Lucas, Spielberg, they both wanted to do this. And that's where the Directors Guild steps in. Hmm. The Directors Guild, of which Steven Spielberg was still a member, said, Yeah, no, he can't do that. Not if he's a member of our organization. Hmm. Fuck those guys. (laughs) Fuck those guys in their big, fat asses. because they prevented what was the uh, uh, just a collision of titans. These were the two biggest filmmakers of that time at the height of their power and popularity. And I have a lot of affection for Return of the Jedi. I think it's a fun movie. It's the first Star Wars movie I saw. I think I watched it on Betamax. Yes. I love <laughs> Return of the Jedi. There's uh, one of my favorite moments of Star Wars ever is in that movie. It's that shot where the Millennium Falcon is outrunning the explosion of the Death Star in the middle. It's that it's like that globe thing falls and it's just like the the midnight thing on New Year's Eve. Right. And it's like, Tosh! I love that shot so much and I wouldn't lose that for anything. But that movie also has a lot of flaws. Mm-hmm. Like, it starts a lot of George Lucas's bad kind of, I don't know, bad habits, things like burp jokes, <laughs> weird goofy shit, a lot of stuff like The Ewoks, for the most part, just feel like a cynical toy thing where it was supposed to be Wookiees or something. So a lot of his bad habits are sort of in there. And I have to wonder if Steven Spielberg, as a director of that film, wouldn't have made a much better film and all those bad habits would have gotten wiped out where Spielberg's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Right? I'm not Uh going to do two burp jokes in my Star Wars movie. (laughs) And because of the Director's Guild of America, he actually had to go and get a British director. I think it was... um, what was his name? Mar-
3: Mark Wend? Richard uh, Mark Wanda.
0: Mark it was, no, it was a British guy, uh, Lawrence Kasdan, who's actually going to be a co-writer on Raiders of the Lost Ark mm-hmm. and has done a lot of stuff with him.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: A good director. Right. He's done a lot of really good stuff. He's actually co-writing the new Star Wars movie. Right. Um, he actually came on as director, but I have to wonder what that movie would have been... If it had been a Spielberg movie, it would have been the biggest movie of all time. And because of bureaucracy and a bunch of people wanting to stick it to a uh, maverick filmmaker and try to say, yeah, no, no, we're bigger than you, we were robbed of that. Hmm. So my low point is that we didn't get a Spielberg Return of the Jedi.
3: Hmm. Mike, I hate to, hate to contradict you on a couple things, but... dun uh, uh, dun dun. Marquand was the director of Return of the Jedi. Was he? Yeah. Kazan uh, wrote the screenplay.
0: Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh.
3: And and honestly, the Spielberg thing, I'm not sure how much credence there is to that. What happened um, ultimately was, you know, Irving Kirshner directed Empire Strikes Back, as you mentioned, and he did a beautiful job on it. Right. He directed, um, while you would think this is a good thing, he directed every scene, even if it's second unit, everything that was directed, he directed it as as if it were a close-up shot. And it had to be perfect, and they did a lot of extra takes, and the background detail is perfect, Right. Well, that cost a lot of money, and they lost their financing twice for Empire Strikes Back. Wow. George, often when they were filming Principal, was in L.A. when they were filming in England, and he had to fly over for financial reasons to get them bailed out and work with Bank of America to get this straightened out. And he vowed to never have that happen again. Hmm. So he didn't want a big director or somebody that was going to look at this as a piece of art. He didn't want that for Return of the Jedi, so he hired a television director in Richard Marquand. Oh.
1: Wow. That explains a lot.
3: So I- I think that while it probably was discussed, I don't know how seriously Lucas took it. Huh. And he was, he was over Marquand's shoulder every step of the way.
2: Hmm.
0: I can get that. I guess I, I see the, the potential for what something could have been.
3: And that would have been pretty awesome.
1: It would have been huge. Okay. Uh, Scott, you've been quiet there. What, what's your low point for Steven Spielberg?
2: (laughs) Uh, this was hard to, to pick. Uh, there are, you know, some low points, but, uh, for me, it's Munich. Oh, Uh, Yeah, I know this is out of left field, but I I feel like Munich is like the film that a studio mogul makes because he's grinding an axe, and it doesn't feel like it needed to be made. It's not – it doesn't hold your attention. It's kind of really boring, and it doesn't have a lot of characters you're that interested in. Everyone in the film kind of ends up looking pretty bad. It doesn't have a lot of sympathetic characters. No and whereas um Schindler's List was i would think you know an essential film that needed to be made that was uh very very important Munich was kind of like it just didn't seem like it needed to happen and i know it didn't do that well and it uh it mostly for me the reason it's a low point is it's just not very interesting yeah it
1: it also has the it has the, i think the most controversial thing of any of his movies in that the, it was based on a book by a guy who basically lied and said that he was part of the, was it Operation Gideon's Sword, which I think was the, mm-hmm. the Mossad operation, who yeah. lied and said that, oh, I, I was part of this operation, here all these details, and he wrote, he wrote a best selling. Uh, book about it. And Spielberg, neither Spielberg nor the producers or the writers actually bothered to go back and interview members of the families that were involved, either the Palestinian families or the Israeli families. They didn't really do any fact-checking. They just sort of took the content of the book, movie it, and then put it out there, even though it's purporting to represent actual hi- historical events. Yeah,
2: that's a big problem because it's a very political film, of but it it's not very uh,
3: factual. I, I think... Um... While it's not my favorite movie of his, I think it uh, really was. Uh, it really paved the way for movies like Zero Dark Thirty and a lot of movies mm. we're seeing now that are dealing with our, our current situation in the world with terrorism and the way that the U.S. is hunting people down, um, and that sort of intrigue that is a mixture of action and intelligence, uh, kind of spycraft sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it really lays the foundation for the modern like terrorist hunter movie, R- um, right? And right. much like Munich; those all fall under controversy for their uh, attention to accuracy. Right,
1: right. Well, I mean, there's a there's always a problem with telling accurately telling a story that about history that's not that far in the past. Right, right. There, that that is a making a World War II movie is a lot easier for that, mm-hmm. for that for that reason. But yeah, I I completely share your notion that it's problematic. But Milo Point has what I believe, and it's about war, to be the most problematic movie that Steven Spielberg ever made, and. Most of our our listeners have probably never seen it. It was 1941. Oh, <laughs> Steven Spielberg's quote comedy unquote about the weeks after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, where the Americans were get, getting themselves ready to enter the war against the J- Japan. You know, it's about uh, Southern California, and it's basically a slapstick comedy about people volunteering for the war or people that are left behind getting ready for home defense of a potential Japanese sneak attack like Pearl Harbor and it could have been an intriguing sort of set piece for a story to take place but there are reasons why it is did not work and it didn't work so terribly that this is why we don't talk about it anymore so it's the convergence of a few different stories of one about a young man who's ambivalent to the war and just wants to win a dancing contest and wants to dance with his friend who is also his girlfriend about a wacky army platoon led by Dan Aykroyd, who is trying to prepare uh, all of Los Angeles County for an atten- a potential attack, a horny officer trying to get in bed with uh, a general's secretary, and a com- a completely uh, innocuous and goofy Japanese submarine off the coast of the Pacific Coast, trying to blow up Hollywood because they think it'll demoralize uh, America to do that, and. It's a fucking flaming hot mess, the entire movie is. <laughs> it really is. It, the, 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 and I'll just say that, you know, this movie makes Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor look like Gone with the Wind, for fuck's sake, as far as trying to portray America during this point of time. And it clearly isn't trying to represent anything with any kind of historical accuracy. It's a comedy. And it isn't trying to be anything other than a comedy, and it's not funny. And, and uh, you know, that main plot of Wally being the dancer... I don't you know, it, it has this whole dance off thing that leads to like the biggest bar brawl ever conceived of in history. Maybe Blazing Saddles might be might be bigger, um, <laughs> it, but it just is sheer stupidity. There's no reason why you care about him or his rival, his rival with Treat Williams, who's the other army officer. And it's just forced foolish. Uh, you know, the army battalion with Dan Aykroyd and John Candy, who are great actors, have nothing to do in this film. They're not funny. Um, they're trying to get Ackroyd to play like the cool straight straight guy, which he does perfectly as Joe Friday in Dragnet. He's doing that character. Nothing. There's nothing. It's it's Keystone Cops without funny. Is what it is. And last and and, and well, second second to last, John Belushi's character, which basically it looks like they 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 took Blutarsky out of Animal House, <laughs> slapped a bomber's jacket on him and then gave him a plane and all he's doing is run around in circles the entire movie and it doesn't make any sense and accidentally blowing shit up like jar jar Banks. right yes exactly he is probably the best part of the movie but he does, which isn't saying much because he doesn't do anything to help the movie do go anywhere he's just his scenes are just inserted in there and lastly for this is just being the film geek in me the least forgivable the offensive and ludicrous japanese submarine plot which has Toshiro Mufune as the captain and Christopher Lee as this Nazi advisor, amazing actors. And all they are, are buffoons for tasteless jokes that end up, and they end up stumbling through an interrogation scene with slim Pickens making <laughs> toilet jokes. That's where it ends. It's awful, awful squander of talent. I'd, ra- I would have rather seen Mifune and uh, Christopher Lee do like an over the top Indiana Jones type take on a, on us world war II rather than this piece of shit. Um, and what's strange about it is that this is a co- collaboration between Robert Zemeckis and John Milius, two f- filmmakers whose type of writing are, do- are not compatible at all. Like the whimsy and humor of Zemeckis combined with like the, the, proto- fascism. the proto-fascism <laughs> of John Milius and this is it's not exciting, it's not humorous, it's neither of these things and it's just a blot on his record and I think we we better forget about it. I think we and we have forgotten about it. Yeah.
0: We have. I actually watched this movie because a couple of weeks ago, you said, okay, if you're going to watch one thing, please watch this. I don't want to be the only person who'd seen this movie. So I'm like, oh, okay. And the first thing I'll say about it is it's a remarkably well-crafted, terrible movie. <laughs> yeah, but they
1: spent a lot of money on
0: it. It looks really good. The scenes with the planes going through Los Angeles downtown, yeah. people firing. I mean, it looks like a big, expensive movie. And it's so weird to see that kind of budget and scale and craftsmanship that go into this movie because... It never picks a tone. It never Mm -hmm. decides what it is that it's trying to be. I like the idea of doing a comedy about the stupid blind panic that comes in the face of war. But they never make it funny. In fact, what it kind of feels like, and this is why it feels like such a weird hodgepodge of different movies, we talked about Spielberg affecting and leading trends and sort of leaving his mark everywhere. This is the movie where everyone else leaves their mark on him because mm-hmm. it feels like a mix right. between Dr. Strangelove and Porky's. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's an entire well thing said. where it's all about this one guy trying to trick a woman into fucking him. And it's all about trying to get... It's this lengthy all-night quest to get onto a plane because apparently it has hypnotic powers on her. And every line of dialogue that in, happens between the two of them is sexual innuendo. It's like watching a Roger Moore Bond movie. <laughs> and it just never chooses its tone. It never decides to be as wacky as Airplane. But it never decides to be as serious or as you know just bizarre as dr Strangelove right, and it never commits to the sex comedy team thing either because it's really p g it's never it's pretty clean, it doesn't have nudity in it, it never really chooses or commits hard it's like it's trying to hedge its bets as a movie right like i, I this is just enough that I can do something with the Porky's crowd, but not turn off Grandma <laughs> at the same time. And here's enough of the nostalgia button and the set design that people love. But it's not going to be a thing movie because it feels a bit more like Animal House. And it never really picks something. And that's what makes it so frustrating is that it's kind sort of a weirdly hypnotic movie that you watch the whole thing and it's hard to look away from it, but you never laugh at any of the jokes. You're just kind of like marveling at the set design but going, why did you make that decision? Right. What's right. happening here? Right. why is this movie a thing
1: why, why is it then Robert Stack is watching Dumbo why is it that he knows all the lyrics beforehand
0: yeah why do,
1: isn't it a new movie in 1941
0: why is Robert Stack in this movie <laughs> yes. I think he's like one of the few characters that can retain most of his dignity even while he's crying at Dumbo <laughs> it, nothing in this movie makes any sense whatsoever and it's I've never seen such a terrible movie that should by all counts be really cheap looking looks so good i mean it has this kind of it looks like a norman rockwell painting it does it it has that sort of soft focus to it where you feel like you're watching this old movie but it also feels like you're watching a cheap 80s trash comedy (laughs) and it won't pick and it's just like what the fuck are you doing steven spielberg oh all right well good good for low points let's pull ourselves out of
1: the gutter and go to the top of the mountain High point. I'm going to start with you, Mike. What is your
0: high point for Spielberg? Spielberg actually is something that I touched on before, which is Steven Spielberg, more than any one creative person, made science fiction mainstream. Hmm. That you look at E.T. and Close Encounters, these were not just movies for science fiction fans. This is in 2001. If you're not a science fiction fan, you weren't going to see 2001 Maybe Star Wars is a bit of a breakout in this front, too, that you got a mainstream audience to get really excited about monsters and Wookiees and stuff. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, there was always this hard line, and usually money did not fall on the side of the line with science fiction. This was stuff that you watched to the drive-in. This was cheap schlock. Then you had sort of these big, you know, emotional epics. Steven Spielberg meshed them, that you really had America enraptured with movies about aliens and had tears streaming down their face worrying about the plight of an alien, which is just an animatronic puppet. Right. The fact is that he made you feel for that puppet that you forgot this was a prop and it became a character, that you understood the mindset of these people in this story. The same thing with Jaws. Jaws is a schlock movie. Oh, my God, a killer shark movie. It's it got such a great reputation that people forget that really its genre is horror.
3: Yeah. It's a yeah.
0: horror movie that was nominated for Best Picture. When has that ever happened?
3: Yeah. See, I think it's an adventure movie. It is an adventure movie. In the guise of a horror movie. But here's another thing with Spielberg, though, too, is
0: that he meshes those genres so well that it's like all of these things. Right. Hmm. It's an adventure movie. It's also a drama. It's a coming-of-age story that just happens to have the backdrop of a shark attack or an alien landing or, you know... Meeting aliens at Devil's Tower. I mean, these are all things that are just the backdrop. It's all about these characters. And if it wasn't for Steven Spielberg and meshing these sort of co- traditional comedy and traditional drama with science fiction and fantasy elements, do you really think that movies like Explorers or Cocoon would exist? Hmm. Do you really think that Disney would have taken a risk on movies like Tron or Flight of the Navigator? Right. I mean, the mainstreaming of science fiction and the genre genre mixing, These this has created movies that probably wouldn't exist if not for Spielberg. Ghostbusters, Repo Man, Short Circuit, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> would those movies exist without Spielberg? I really don't think so. Science fiction movies are movies for everybody now. Yeah. That, you know, one of the biggest movies of last year had a talking raccoon from space in it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that would have happened if yeah. not for Steven Spielberg. Yeah. I wonder if you know we would be willing to accept these sort of the whimsy also with an emotional depth and all these things that are such a big part of filmmaking. Like we said there is a pre-Spielberg and a post-Spielberg thing and I think the biggest thing that he did was make your mom care about movies right. with time travel and aliens. Right. That science fiction mainstreaming is entirely on his shoulders. Mm, nice. Uh, Scott, high point for you.
2: Yeah, it's uh, Close Encounters for sure. Whoa. Uh, h- hands down. It's it's like movie magic and it's it's uh, hypnotic to watch. It's beautiful. It has one of the most compelling sound sequences in, in film. Uh, you know, the universal language of music. It's it's just, um, it's so, it's like a religious experience for me. Wow. <laughs> and I, I, I think a lot of it is because I'm a huge sci-fi fan uh, and it's, kind of unlike any other um and it's uh god i there's just so much more to say about it it's uh it's a really foundational film for me and i think for the genre as mike said
1: you know it's great because it's it's doug trumbull doing the effects of the aliens he's the guy who did um Star Trek motion picture 2001 and Blade mm-hmm. Runner so yeah. and you can you can almost you can see that uh, in sort of the way that the, the the light plays it seems a lot like 2001 that's there and uh, interestingly enough uh, the, <laughs> the 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 jazz score is at part of the motherships in, yes, the, in the beginning yeah this is funny because he's en- endlessly referencing John Williams who's such a huge part of him
2: um, you, go ahead Scott. You, you know what I also wanted to say about it is it has a great message and like a very Spielberg message. That they might they're out there, and they aren't necessarily out to get us, so we shouldn't be out to get them <laughs> hmm. and and that uh because we don't understand something doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with it, you know, and that's really what it's about and trying to prove that to people uh and I think that's kind of a thread that runs through a lot of his films.
0: I saw that in e t too is that e t the movie is about that this thing that you should be scared of because both he and e t Elliot. They're terrified of each other when they first see, and they slowly learn to trust each other. Yeah. But the same is actually true of the Peter Coyote character with the keys, that when you meet him, he's not this terrifying monster, that everybody's a person. And we learned that in that fight scene with the, the knife. And, um, Saving Private save, Ryan. Thank you. Saving Private Ryan. It just it feels like remembering we're all people. mm hmm
3: mm-hmm. Nice. You know, I'm going to paraphrase, but there, I read a quote from Spielberg years ago um, where he said um, that he would never make a movie that would put aliens in a bad light. Like he's got this loyalty to aliens, and <laughs> he's then he turn made turn and then he made War of the Worlds, and then he made War of the Worlds. So that I think to me helps helps solidify that change in Spielberg's right. m- mindset from right. 80s Spielberg to after. Todd, what is your high point for Spielberg? On one hand that's really hard because there's I mean he's just got so many really strong movies particularly in the 80s. Um on the other hand, um you know, like like all you guys have seen, you know, thousands of movies, right? And I'm often talking to my wife, and I'll I'll talk about how much I love a certain movie. I'll say, that's easily in my top 100 movies. (laughs) And (laughs) a lot of people hear that, and she always poke fun at me about this, too. Um, And I'll say, well, that's ridiculous. How could it be in your top 100 movies? (laughs) And that's like, because I've seen a lot of movies. That's actually a really big compliment for me. Um, But Jaws is always in my top 10. Oh, wow. Jaws is an amazing movie. And I'll tell you... um, Like Mike said, it's a great horror movie. Like I was saying, it's a great adventure movie. Um, Roy Scheider's performance is excellent. Everybody's excellent, though. And that's the thing. This, to me, is is a testament to Spielberg as a director of actors. Everybody is Mm -hmm. excellent in that movie. And I'm not just talking about the principles. And you could say the same thing for Close Encounters. There's a lot of people. Just a lot of human beings in those movies. And mm-hmm. every single extra, everybody is perfect.
1: Do, do you know what I love? I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you know what I love about Close Encounters? Is there's a there's a scene that they're at the dinner table and he's starting to do the thing where he starts to freak out and the little girl says, There's a fly in my peanut butter or yeah. something. Totally improv. <laughs> and and it's in there and it's great. It's yeah, beautiful. Exactly.
3: Yeah. You know, and one of the things I really enjoy in Close Encounters is when the you know, all the all the agents with the sunglasses and the red satin suits are getting on the Piggly Wiggly bus or whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> the driver. This is just a shot. He takes the time to have a close shot of the driver, who's also wearing shades. Checking them all out as they go on the bus. It's just a simple human thing. Mike often talks about uh, when you're in front of green screen, actors don't do things yeah. that they would in the in, a, in the actual environment. This is an actual environment sort of thing that I'm sure was not in the screenplay. Um, but Jaws is chock full of those yeah. everywhere, and I mean, yeah. just so many. I mean, every single scene is perfect in that movie, yeah. and
2: every casting choice is kind of perfect, and everything that even the little the extras do, the people with one line, it's just like the right. The right reading, the right person.
3: Absolutely. The shark is almost inconsequential to that movie. As foundational as it is, it's it's not what makes that a strong movie. You could take the suspense out of it. You could even take the adventure out of it. And you could just have it be a conversation movie. And I'd watch it again and again and again. Beautiful.
1: Very nice. Well, I'm going to reserve the best for last for myself because we really didn't talk about it. Raiders of the Lost Ark is my Ooh, high point. Yeah. Um, and I'd be willing to say it's the best adventure film that's ever been made. Um, Whoa. And, it, you know, it was a loving callback to the serial films of Spielberg's childhood, of lots of kids, lots of Baby Boomer's childhood. Um, and it's about as close to cinematic perfection as you can get, I think. Um, the, a comp, like, a period piece with great characters and exotic locales and Harrison Ford's swagger, that's a winning fucking combination. I mean, I just rewatched it again, and I've probably seen it thirty or so times after buying it for nine ninety five from McDonald's in like nineteen ninety one. Me too. <laughs> Whatever that was. And I'm so impressed, actually, by how rich the character development is um just the character development and that's how important it is for them to sell the world which is very comic booky and kind of there's lots of there's lots of supernatural spookiness and legendariness that ha- that happens and uh and I love that when there is action and danger that it's communicated through great stunt work. The this movie is about lots of awesome stunt guys doing crazy insane stunts get, Nazis getting knocked off of trucks or Guy playing Indiana Jones going underneath the fucking truck, which is an insane stunt. You know, uh, it's
3: a love letter to stuntman, really. Of, of to course, the stunt industry, uh,
1: the, and, and of course, the impressive fusion of some model work, some uh, I don't know if there are green screens at the time, but uh, some some compositing work as well as practical pyrotechnics make everything feel grounded and also dangerous and exhilarating. And even though some of the action sometimes has some sort of like Rube Goldberg nest to them, they're a little bit too intricate. Their campiness is mitigated by the fact that they're executed really, really well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And this is probably because he had, after those 10 years or so of doing um, great visual storytelling, he would basically perfected it and his talents really shine. And you know what? All credit to George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan. They made a great character in Indiana Jones and Harrison Ford, of course, his contribution to making the characters. Ladies want to fuck him. Men want to be him. You know, (laughs) He's, he's the intellectual, the, he's the intellectual, the fighter, the survivor and the lover all in one. You know, he's the, he's a Mary Sue character that doesn't feel like a Mary Sue, you know? And, uh, he like when there has to be exposition in the movie, as there inevitably does with high concept shit, it doesn't feel hokey it did, the comic book silliness is convincing somehow and plausible in the way that it's put together and I think Indy is just one of the best fictional characters ever made. He's just so fucking good uh you know it may not have sold the most tickets for for Spielberg um, and it certainly didn't win the most awards for Spielberg, but it's like this is this is his rare unicorn, and it really is the best for my for mine hands down high point. That movie was made
3: by top men.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's great. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, Scott Kramer, thanks for spending the time with us, sir. Mm -hmm. It was great. Awesome. Todd, Maxfield Matsumoto. Always a pleasure. And last but not least, Mike, thanks for being with us. Always. All right, Internet, and we'll see you next time.
0: Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at radioversustheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at com. What did you say the name of this shark is?
3: It's a carcarid and It's a great white. But you,
2: you
0: don't have the tooth. Look, we depend on the summer people here for our very lives. You are not going and to have a summer close those unless beaches, you deal We're, with this we're
3: not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. I mean, we're going to have to tell the Coast Guard. Mr. Vandero, we're going to have to contact shark the shark We're to have to put the panel. deputies on because you you mean, have the world this is going to come in Harper. here. We've got to like like one, 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 one of you yet. are familiar with our problems. Uh,
2: I think that I am familiar with the fact that you are going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you on the ass.